welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode. As I'm recording this, it's the middle of June 2021 and it's a beautiful, cool but sunny winter's day here in Perth, Western Australia. Pretty typical winter's day actually over here. We're very lucky. And uh, I think since the last time I recorded, I've had my first jab of the AstraZeneca vaccine and the next one's coming up in a couple of months time. And I, I think if you're eligible for vaccination, then line up and get it as quickly as possible because it's, uh, it's an amazing thing that uh, we're in the middle of this uh, global pandemic and we have created vaccines faster than ever before. Um, and it's just amazing what we can do when we put all our resources into it. And of course, we're very lucky here in Australia, around the world, the pandemic is still raging, that the world's biggest democracy, India, is still caught in the grips of this and still trying to get it under control. And the world's second biggest democracy, the USA, is starting to get this under control now. And it seems like vaccinations are helping to bring case numbers down, but there's still hundreds of people dying every day in the USA and in India and thousands of people around the world. So we've still got a long way to go yet. Uh, personally, my big news is that my new book, Disrupted, is out, hot off the presses, and I've got it in my hot little hands. You can see it here, and you can see it's a beautiful cut. Okay, sorry, you can't see it here because this is audio, but I'm really pleased with this. This is the book that I started writing about a year ago, earlier in the pandemic, because I could see that leadership had to change if we were going to come out of this pandemic and grow on the other side of it. My previous book, Disruption by Design, was written for leaders before disruption. The key message of that book was disrupt yourself before something or some, someone comes along and disrupts you. And now this book is for leaders on the other side of disruption who have to lead their teams through crisis, recovery and growth. And it's coming out now a little bit later than I thought. I was hoping to have it a couple of months ago, but uh, anyone who's written a book can relate to this, the idea that uh, the book's never finished. And I was always in the position of thinking, oh, here's some new interesting development that's happened. And here's something that I can add to make the book even more current and more relevant. But of course, with a book, at some point you have to say, I'm done. I'm going to send it off to the printers and it's going to be done. And that's, that's true now. So the book's available at disruptedbook.com.au. Or you can go to my website, gihanperera.com, and you can get the book from there. So even though I didn't make a big deal of it, the last few episodes of this podcast have been me talking about chapters from the book. There are seven chapters in the book. The last three episodes were chapters from the book. So there was a chapter about empathy. So there's a podcast episode about empathy. There was another one about the team of the future. And as a result of that, the workplace of the future that's going to support that team. And also the other chapter about digital and digital change and digital transformation because COVID-19 has accelerated that for lots of organizations and for our community at large. In this episode, I'm going to take another chapter of the book. But before we get into that, let me read to you the first few pages of the book, which is the introduction or the overview. And then we'll get into today's podcast episode, which is talking about trust. So introduction. On Friday, the 13th of March, 2020, Ooh, Friday the 13th. That bit's not in the book. The sound effects didn't make it into there. Um, on Friday the 13th of March, 2020, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison made a historic announcement banning non-essential gatherings of more than 500 people to stop further spread of this novel coronavirus that was sweeping through the world. And Australia's Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy described the ban as a precautionary measure, but it didn't take long to realise that we needed stronger measures and for longer, to protect the country. And in those early days, we kept hearing about unprecedented times, to the point that it became a cliche. But it was appropriate because the pandemic affected us all. For almost everybody, this was their first experience of a disruption that affected the entire world. You couldn't switch to a new market, you couldn't move your operations elsewhere, and you couldn't escape to a safe haven anywhere else. The pandemic affected everybody and everywhere. And it triggered a triple crisis. The health crisis from the virus itself, an economic crisis for industries and businesses that were hit hard by lockdowns and travel restrictions, and a social crisis from the combined effect of the other two. And even if you weren't directly affected by the health crisis or the economic crisis, you still understood the impact of the social crisis on yourself, your family, friends, team members and the rest of your community. And as with any change, it affected everybody differently. From an economic viewpoint, some businesses were crushed, 
forced to close. Others experienced some change to their operations but could still operate. So, for example, office workers who work from home and others even thrived through increased demand for their products and services. Now, over the last few decades, many industries have faced disruption and change and have worked with many leaders and teams who strive to survive and not to survive, but thrive. So they learned how to create backup plans to allow for change. They learned how to make decisions without knowing what the future holds and to act with confidence and clarity in a time of uncertainty. And most importantly, those who succeeded saw opportunities where others only saw threats and risks. So it's time to step up. Pandemic or not, most industries already face disruption and change from many external forces, including AI, artificial intelligence, uh, globalization, climate change, social media, and younger generations entering consumer markets and the workforce. So, as I said earlier, I wrote my previous book, Disruption by Design, to warn leaders about the inevitable disruption coming their way, and I urged them to take action fast. Disrupt yourself, I said, before it happens to you. Now, I didn't predict that that disruption would come from a pandemic, but in a fast-changing world, I knew it would come from something. And this book is for leaders on the other side of disruption, who must lead with their heart and their head as they navigate through this time of uncertainty and rapid change. And as a leader, your role is to continue leading your team and your organization with clarity and confidence despite the uncertainty and chaos. If you manage a team, your team members are looking to you for leadership and if you lead an organization, they're all looking to you. And a crisis doesn't create leaders, it amplifies them. See, normal times, many organizations tolerate mediocre leaders. They don't seem to do much harm and the cost of replacing them seems to outweigh the cost of keeping them. This is not necessarily true, but it's easier to just let things slide. But in a crisis, those leaders are ruthlessly exposed. They lack the emotional intelligence to lead people who are stressed and anxious. They struggle to focus on the right business objectives, and they don't know how to balance those two competing priorities. And a crisis often uncovers leadership from unexpected quarters. They're the people who might have been considered too young, too old, too junior, too quiet, too soft, too different, too something. They, they're the ones who often step up. They take charge and they lead the way. And they aren't necessarily the extroverts. They don't always have a leader on their business card and they might not have been earmarked as leaders. So be an avocado leader. In June 2020, a year ago, Macquarie Business School and We Are Unity surveyed senior leaders in Australia about the way they were handling the pandemic. And they identified three things that the most successful leaders prioritised. Employee mental health, faster and more cost-effective ways of working, and fast-tracking digital disruption. They also found three key leadership behaviours that were driving results. Decisiveness, empathy and connectedness. And they wrote a report, COVID-19 Crisis or Catalyst, and in it, they coined the phrase avocado leader to describe a new leadership style for successfully navigating through crisis. So like an avocado, this kind of leader has an, a hard inner core, which is the, their commercial focus on business outcomes, and they have a soft outer layer, which are the empathetic people skills. Now, the best leaders have always acted this way. They treat their people as people first, but they know that performance still matters. So they plan from the head to achieve the team and organization's objectives, but they lead from the heart to bring people along on the journey. And in times of uncertainty like this, we need more avocado leaders. Okay, so that's how the book starts. So there are chapters for the head, chapters for the heart, and there's one chapter that combines both of them. Actually, they all require both head and heart, but there's a different focus in each chapter. So today, I want to focus on one of the biggest topics that, that I've talked to leaders about over the last year, and it's the issue of trust. I've had many conversations since the start of the pandemic with leaders who are trying to navigate their teams through uncertain times. And there's one word which crops up over and over and over again. And that word is trust. So how do you trust your people who are working from home? How do you trust people to take more initiative? How do you trust them to know when to follow rules and when it's okay to break them? 
Now, if you don't trust your people, I think that's your fault, not theirs. So let's get one thing clear before we start. So when you talk about trust, there are two parts of trust and two kinds of trust. So one is, do you trust their character? Do you trust that they're good people? Do you know that they're essentially trustworthy? You know that they're not going to just slack off when you can't see them. They're not going to be stealing money from you or be doing illegal things or abusing customers. So that sort of stuff, which is around their character, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, do you trust them to effectively and competently do the role that's required of them, even if you're not supervising and monitoring and micromanaging them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And building trust happens in three stages. So first of all, there's mastery. So they have many hours of deliberate practice in the skills that they've learned. And that means that they gradually build mastery. The second thing is judgment. So you give them lots of exposure to different contexts. And because of that, they learn to exercise good judgment when applying those skills. And the third level is around wisdom. So you give them a broader perspective about what's important, and then they can apply that good judgment wisely. So at the moment, I'm teaching my 16-year-old niece, Abby, to drive. And she's going through these three stages now. So I trust Abby, and I trust her character. I know she's not going to be the getaway driver for a bank robbery, but... She still needs, according to the WA police, 50 hours of supervised driving before she can even apply to get her license. And she's going through these three stages. So first of all, she knows the road rules and and the basic mechanics of driving. But of course, it's going to take many hours of practice before she can master those skills. And then as she applies those skills in different situations, she's going to build good judgment behind the wheel. And over time, she'll also gain a broader perspective about specific driving situations such as she'll learn when to avoid a difficult intersection instead of struggling through it and that means that she'll become a wise driver. So a similar thing applies for your team members. For each of your team members identify their current stage and determine how to accelerate their progress to the next stage. So first when they learn something new through training or coaching or mentoring or other customized learning help them apply those skills in their work. Then work on building their judgment by giving them opportunities to understand more about the work environment. Finally, show them what really matters. So you give them the big picture so they can develop wisdom when they're applying their judgment. So your your goal is not just to build better workers, it's to build better people. So when you trust them and they trust you, you don't just build better followers, but you build better leaders as well. And that's our ultimate goal. So the first area is mastery. You may remember in 2008, uh, journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell published his very popular book, Outliers, The Story of Success. And that popularized the idea that it takes 10,000 hours of practice at a skill to achieve mastery. And that whole meme, that 10,000 hours, it spread rapidly because it was simple, it was memorable, it was catchy, but it was also wrong. Now, Anders Ericsson, who's the person that Gladwell cited as the basis for this idea, claimed that Gladwell had just misinterpreted and oversimplified his work. And uh, Ericsson's research paper was called The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance. And you can tell from that, it highlights the focus of the research, deliberate practice. And at work, that means doing more than just skills training for your team. And if if you want to help them build mastery, what you want to do is give them time and space to practice those skills in a supportive environment. And you give them encouragement, feedback and support at each step of the way. So let's talk about some ways you can do that. Safety first. In 2012, almost 10 years ago, Google embarked on an ambitious project to discover the secrets of effective teams. It was named after Aristotle. The project was called Project Aristotle. Aristotle said the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's what Google's research was looking at. How can we find objective criteria for team effectiveness? And they eventually identified five key characteristics of an effective team. And the most important factor was psychological safety, and which then that is a measure of each person's perception of the consequences of taking an interpersonal risk. In other words, you want them to feel safe taking risks around their colleagues, even with something as simple as, say, um, asking a dumb question at a meeting. And so psychological safety is essential on the path to mastery. As your team members practice new skills in, in complex and unfamiliar environments, They want to know that they're not going to be belittled, criticized or punished either to their face or behind their back as they learn. 
So when you make it safer for them to fail, you make it easier for them to succeed. Uh, by the way, the, the five secrets of high-performance teams from Google's Project Aristotle, number one is psychological safety. Number two is dependability, which is saying that people reliably complete quality work on time and they can rely on other team members to do the same. Number three, structure and clarity. So everybody understands the expectations of their job. They understand their outcomes and goals. They know the process for achieving them and they know the consequences of their performance, good and bad. Number four is meaning. People find meaning in the work itself or its output, and it aligns with their own sense of purpose and their personal goals. And number five is related, but bigger picture, which is impact. So everybody knows that the result of their work at an individual level and team level makes a difference and contributes to larger goals. So let's go back to psychological safety. As with many other things, it's more difficult to create psychological safety when you've got an uncertain and volatile environment. So when people are anxious and stressed, they're less open to new ideas, they're, they're more ready to criticize others, and they become more insular. So they, they often adopt this mindset of don't drop the boat or don't make waves. And to make matters even worse, the skills that they've already mastered might no longer apply because the external environment has changed. So you face a bigger challenge to foster an environment of psychological safety when you're going through a crisis and recovery. You want people to feel safe rocking the boat and making waves, you know, as long as they don't capsize it in the middle of the storm. So guard your team's psychological safety. Promote it, support it whenever you can with your words and your actions. Be alert to people who undermine it and if they don't always do it deliberately. And also discuss this concept of psychological safety openly with your team so they are also respect and protected. Next, shut up and listen. Jeffrey Purit, who's the president and CEO of TELUS International, was asked... Uh, in an interview, which workplace practice he would most likely to eliminate. And he said it was the Jeff said game. So what he called humorously, this idea of Jeff said. So he was referring to this habit of employees saying they could or couldn't do something because, in quotation marks, Jeff said so. In other words, they were deferring to something that the boss had said or maybe not said. And he was most concerned about things that he maybe hadn't said or he'd said, but they were being misinterpreted and shared wrongly and they'd taken on a life of their own. But even when he was quoted accurately, this whole Jeff said game became an excuse to abdicate responsibility. Now, there's been some research into group dynamics and it finds that status plays an important role in a group. Probably not surprising. So people with higher perceived status, in other words, you, if you're a leader, uh, tend to dominate a discussion, even if they don't have more knowledge or more experience or their opinions aren't any more valid. Because people with a lower status, they're, they're less confident to express their opinion, especially if they know that it might cause a conflict or doesn't align with those of higher status. So when you're the boss, it's safer for people to agree with you than to make their own decisions based on their expertise and even objective criteria. They're like baby ducklings. They want to stay close to their mother and they don't want to stray too far. They censor their own ideas and their own opinions and that's often to their own detriment and the team's loss. So just be aware that everything you say influences the rest of the conversation. So don't speak too soon. So here are some things you could do. Ask first before you express an opinion. Listen carefully without filtering it through your own experience. If somebody can contribute something, thank them for their contribution, even if you disagree with it. Maybe especially if you disagree with it. And then also resist the temptation to, you know, improve their ideas. Just be aware that even your presence alone in a meeting changes the tone and direction of the meeting, whether or not you speak. So unless it's essential for you to attend... Stay out of the meeting, stay away and simply ask them for the outcome. And this allows other people to share more openly and frankly. And it usually leads to a better outcome. And of course, the other benefit, it's one less meeting for you to attend, which means that you can spend your time doing more important activities. Next, be consistent. Now, I live in an inner city suburb of Perth. I've got five cafes within a few minutes walking distance of my home. And I like to support local businesses. So I like to kind of spread my business among them. I've got a couple of favorites, but I try to visit them all. But what I find is that I visit four of them frequently and only go to the fifth one when the others are closed. Why? The fifth one also serves good coffee, but not consistently. The quality varies depending on 
who's operating the coffee machine on the day, the time of the day and how busy they are. And because I can't trust them to be consistent, I usually make a different choice instead. Now you might think I'm a coffee snob and you might be right, but this story illustrates a really important truth about trust. We value consistency and consistency builds trust. Now, two leadership development experts, Jack Zenger and Joseph Falkman, in their research, they identify consistency as one of the three key elements of trust for leaders. The other two, by the way, are positive relationships, and uh, third is good judgment and expertise. But let's go back to consistency, because consistency creates a pattern. Our brains respond to patterns. Um, You know this, even with little things like stumbling on a staircase when one step is a slightly different height from all the others. Your actions, in the same way, build a pattern of behavior, and people use that to trust you, whether you like it or not. Even the boy who cried wolf created a pattern of trust. Actually, in that case, it was a pattern of mistrust, so it wasn't the kind of trust he wanted, but people judged him based on that pattern. So when you're helping your team members build their skills, don't expect them to be perfect because they're practicing. After all, that's a whole idea. But do set other ground rules around consistency, such as you create a plan, you follow procedures, you get them to check in regularly and encourage them to admit their mistakes. uh, Things like asking for help and listening to feedback. And you agree on these rules together when they're starting some important task and explain why it's important not just to follow them, but to follow them consistently so they build trust. And also, in return, they expect the same of you. They expect you to act consistently. For example, if you say to them that they should feel comfortable speaking up when they make a mistake, and that's a good thing to do, But one day they do that and you give them constructive feedback and then the next time they do it, you get angry at them because you're in a bad mood, then they just won't be able to trust you. So think of it like the weather forecast. It isn't perfect, but it's usually reliable enough to plan a picnic or decide what to wear. So in the same way, don't aim for perfection, but aim for consistency. My last idea around this area of mastery is to learn and do. The World Economic Forum published a future jobs report a few years ago, and they identified the key skills that we need for the future workplace. And among the top five, both around the world and for Australia, was the skill which they call active learning. So we can't rely only on the skills and knowledge that got us here. We must be willing to be constantly learning updating and upgrading skills and knowledge, and even unlearning. So things that used to be true but aren't relevant or correct anymore, we have to be willing to let go of. So when you think about turning your skills into mastery, an important part of active learning is implementation. In other words, putting whatever you learn into practice. So when you've got an uncertain and fast-changing world, learning a skill in any sort of training environment is a useful first step, but it isn't enough, even when you've got advanced training technologies such as, as is often happening, virtual reality. Until you apply the skill in practice and in context, it it will still remain mostly an academic exercise. Uh, One of my clients, Dr. Nikki Howe, is my role model for this practice. So Nikki is the CEO of Southcare, which is an aged care facility in Perth, and she's an enthusiastic learner. Every time she learns something, she dives headfirst into it, and uh, I like that. But what I admire even more is that every time she learns something, she looks for an opportunity to implement that, to try it out in the real world, in her workplace, in her professional life, but also in her personal life. And when I was mentoring her a few years ago, I never had to prompt her to take action after we had a mentoring session. She would quite often tell me, sometimes even on the same day, how she tried an idea with her team, and then she'd ask me for feedback. I'd love you to cultivate this same bias for implementation with your team. So whenever a team member learns something new, encourage them to apply it in practice. And and most people just don't realize the value of this, the value of implementation. So it's not natural to them. They might think, I've done the training course, I've ticked that box, I can get on with my life. So you might have to keep reminding them until it becomes a habit, but it's really worth it. And the idea behind implementing your learning is that it gives you useful feedback, and even if it doesn't work as expected. In fact, it's more common than not that it doesn't work exactly as you think. In the rare case that it does work perfectly, fantastic. It reinforces and confirms the learning. But more commonly, you discover unexpected obstacles. So what do you do? You tweak it to make it work. You make it work for you in your environment. Or you might even discover it won't work at all. So what you learned, actually you can't use, and you need to throw it away. But isn't it good to know that sooner rather than later, 
even that is useful. I've always liked this quotation from Benjamin Brewster from the 19th century, and he said, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. So we looked at the first area, which is around mastery. Let's move on to the second area, which is about building judgment. In a crisis, you sometimes need that old-fashioned, top-down command and control management. But after the crisis is over, um, that kind of leadership style is no longer appropriate. So you want to help your team members build their judgment so they can act appropriately in different circumstances. And broadly, you build their judgment in three ways. And I'm going to use this metaphor. So first of all, you break down the walls by showing them how others work. And that helps them understand how their role fits with everything else. Second, you raise the roof and that elevates their view so they can see how the organization operates from more senior viewpoints. Finally, metaphorically, you open the door so you can leverage their talent by letting them speak up and be heard inside and even outside the team. So these three stages give your team members context. So they've got some skills, but now they know when, where and why to apply those skills. First, break down the walls. We always judge things by their context, by things around them. So you want to encourage your people to step outside their own little bubble and observe other people at work. By doing this, they're going to gain a richer understanding of that work, what other people are doing, and they'll see the relevance of their own work as well. So one of the simplest ways of doing this is to let them shadow other people as an observer. So let them start with other colleagues in the team. So let each person nominate a colleague that they'd like to follow and observe for a day, a week or more, and so that they can better understand their role. Then, if you want to go to the next level, enroll people from other teams as well for this exercise. And this is especially useful for teams that directly engage with each other. For example, if you lead a sales team, your salespeople will learn a lot by shadowing people in the marketing team. And of course, vice versa. For another perspective, let them shadow people who've got customer-facing roles, because that will show them how their work ultimately helps to solve customer problems, especially if your team is a few steps removed from the, the ultimate external customer. Now, all of these scenarios, of course, they require consent and cooperation from the people who are being shadowed, and sometimes their managers, because it can be inconvenient for them. Uh, it increases their workload. It might actually have occupational health and safety and privacy implications. But many people, dare I say it, most people, they're eager to explain their role to other people who are genuinely interested in it. And then if you decide that you're more confident in somebody's ability, instead of just asking them to shadow, you can upgrade that to a more active involvement where they actually do some of the work in that other role. And that gives them even greater exposure and an even richer learning experience. Next, raise the roof. Think back to a situation where you had a competent team member and they made what they thought was a small mistake, but they didn't realize that it had more serious consequences. So they might have done something that to them seemed small, like maybe they criticized a colleague in public, or they arrived late to an important meeting with a key client, or they signed off on a task before it was 100% complete, or they told a little white lie to hasten a deal. Now, you can mitigate some of that risk with training, with systems, with processes and checklists, but you can't cover every possible situation. So what you want to do instead is give them access to things that are, if you like, above their pay scale so that they gain a broader perspective. So this is important, especially in a fast-changing world where you want them to take more initiative and you need to trust them to act appropriately even in situations where you're not around or the, the processes and the, the operating manual doesn't cover them. So first of all, one way you can do this is to take the previous idea, which is exposing them to other people's roles, and extend that to more senior roles. So you don't have to just get them to deal with colleagues or other people at their level, get them to shadow you. You're the right person to start with. So if you do this, copy them on reports that you circulate, invite them to your meetings, ask for their feedback. In my very first job out of uni, my first manager helped me do this. He helped me broaden my perspective by inviting me to attend his management meeting. So I was fairly junior, but the, the managers got together every week and he invited me to come along. Now, my official role in the meeting was to take the minutes, but Kevin's idea was to give me first-hand experience of the leadership culture and how decisions were being made. 
Usually, an important part of your job as a leader is to clear a path for your team, especially in difficult, uncertain times. You run ahead of them, clearing obstacles out of their way so they can get their work done. But this might be an exception. So if you've got somebody who is shadowing you, don't hold back from showing them the difficult, challenging and messy things that happen at your level. Otherwise, they'll only see this unrealistic, sugar-coated view of the rest of the world. And also, don't only show them what you're doing, but take the time to explain why. Because when they understand the purpose of it, they might find a different way. Your way isn't necessarily the only way or the best way. And if they understand the reason why, they can find their own solutions. And sometimes there might even be better solutions. And the last thing I'll say about this is don't spend too much time at this stage. Many leaders don't want to let go because it feels safer to always be supervising their team members when they're experiencing new situations. But you can't keep doing that. Uh, you become a bottleneck and it doesn't help your team members learn. And um, Don't hold on too long. At the next stage, you're going to open the door for them to shine. And the sooner that you can do this responsibly, the better. So let's talk about that, opening the door. So let's take stock of what your team members have achieved so far. They have the skills and some level of mastery for their job. They know what other people around them do. And they understand the big picture from observing more senior people, especially you. Now, most of their learning so far has been through observation, maybe a little bit of action. But now it's time to really immerse them in decision and action. Now, of course, they won't be perfect. Nobody is. But start by assuming they're highly competent and give them environments where they can step up into a role with appropriate safeguards to catch them if they fall. So I suggest the way you do it is this. When you want people to step up into a role, imagine that you've employed a world-renowned, highly paid, experienced expert to join the team and think about how you would use them in the team. Then treat your team members the same way. For example, ask them for advice because they're looking at things with fresh eyes and they have a different angle. So they have valuable insights and ideas. And don't just make this an academic exercise. Be prepared to act on that advice as well. You can take this a step further and ask them to make decisions and make decisions at your level, not at theirs. So you always retain the power of veto. So you can always say no or you could always make a different decision, but don't use that unless there are very strong reasons to do so. Instead, make a rule as a general guideline that you commit to accepting the decision, even if you think you know a better way. Sometimes accepting what you might think is an imperfect option, as long as it works, is better than going for the better option because it builds their confidence. And also, you never know, their decision might turn out to be better than yours. Also, you tap into their networks. So their network might not overlap much with yours. And that's a good thing because they have access to people that you can't reach. And there's a very famous paper by Mark Granovetter, social psychologist, and he calls this the strength of weak ties. And the idea is that uh, the people who you're closest to, there's a lot of overlap between your network and theirs. So if you ask them for help or you ask them to reach out to their network, they're probably going to reach out to similar sort of people that you would as well. But your weaker ties are people who are further away from you, perhaps because they're a lot younger or they've got different expertise or experience. Their networks are quite different from yours. So you get more value from asking them for help. So ask them to reach out. Anytime you're thinking about recruitment, product testing, consumer options and anything, ideas even. And finally, remember that you don't have to take on all the responsibility yourself to leverage their talent. You can ask your peers, you can ask your colleagues, you can ask other people in your network and of course the team members themselves for ideas on how they can leverage their skills and talent. So you open the door to them. Finally, before we leave this area of judgment, what you want is to be able to trust their judgment sooner rather than later. You may have heard of the U.S. department store Nordstrom. It's a retail store in the U.S. It's very well known and it's famous for its customer service standards. And there are many stories of staff members who went well above and beyond expectations to make customers happy. My favorite story is about a staff member who allowed a customer to return a set of car tires for a refund, even though Nordstrom doesn't sell tires. Now, I'm not telling you this because I want to talk about customer service. I'm talking about building judgment. So Nordstrom staff are not just allowed or encouraged to use their judgment. They're told to do so. So on their first day at work, all new employees receive a card summarizing their employee manual. And it says, among other things, it all fits on one card. But it says in terms of the rules, rule number one, 
use your best judgment in all situations, and then there are no additional rules. Now, this might be too big a step for you, and it is for many teams. They don't necessarily have this level of trust yet, but you don't have to do this in one leap. Nordstrom does it because they spend a lot of time and effort in the recruitment process. So they they recruit for quality first, and then they say, we trust your judgment. But you may not be in the position where you have that culture that has been built around trust and judgment. So you can build it step by step. And here's how I suggest you do it. The next time a team member asks you for your help, before you jump in and offer any advice, imagine saying to them, I trust your judgment. And then you you can let them do whatever they think is best. So you don't have to know what they're going to do, but you trust them to do the right thing. Now, remember, you're only imagining this. If you can actually say it and you can say it confidently and responsibly, go ahead and do it. It'll make your life and theirs much better and it reinforces your trust in their judgment. But sometimes, and initially it might be often, you know that it would be inappropriate, possibly even negligent, to simply assume that you could trust their judgment. So you don't say, I trust your judgment, go off and leave me alone. What you do is, of course, you address their immediate need by pitching in and advising them or helping them appropriately. But after helping them, consider why you couldn't trust their judgment this time. It's usually it's because they don't know what to do, they don't know how, or something or someone is getting in the way. So use this as a development opportunity. Work together with your team member to do whatever it takes so the next time they have a similar request, you can confidently say, I trust your judgment. And I do this with my with my business manager, Emma. I've said to her, Em, I always want to say, I trust your judgment. And quite often I do. And I say to her, Emma, if I don't say I trust your judgment, it's not because I don't trust your character, but it's because we need to do something next time so that we can say, I trust your judgment. And it works really well as a way of building trust and judgment step by step. So we talked about mastery, We've talked about judgment. This third area is about wisdom. There's an old Indian parable. It dates from 500 BC or earlier. And it talks about six blind men who are feeling an elephant and then trying to describe it. So one of them feels a trunk and says, oh, an elephant is just like a snake. Another one feels the ear, the flappy ear, and says, oh, an elephant's just like a fan. Another one feels the leg and says, no, no, you're both wrong. It's like a tree trunk, and so on. So you get the idea. So they're all partly right, but they're all wrong because they don't have the perspective to see the full animal. The same thing applies when you're trusting your people to act wisely. Even if they can exercise good judgment in some situations and some environments, until they understand what truly matters, truly matters to your team and the organization, you can't realistically and reasonably say that they have wisdom. So what do you do? Well, you start by telling them what matters, but that's the easy part. The real challenge is giving them the time, the space and the permission to explore this for themselves. So they not only know it in their head, but they can feel it in their heart. So let's look at some of the things you can do to build wisdom. First, and the obvious thing is simply to tell them what matters. Way back in 1967, there's a British philosopher, Philippa Foote, and she published a paper with this, well, I think it's kind of an obscure title, The Problem of Abortion and the Doctrine of Double Effect. You probably haven't heard of it. I hadn't either until I did the research. And she described this ethical dilemma, and it's called now the trolley problem, which you might have heard of. So the scenario goes like this. So imagine there's this runaway tram or trolley hurtling down a track, and it's on a path that will kill five people in its way. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. The people can't escape or you can't stop it, stop the trolley or the tram. The only way to save them is you can pull a lever and that will divert it to a second track. And it will save those five people. But the catch is that second track, it will kill one person. So you're aware of the situation. You know the consequences. You know what you can do and what you can't do. And the only question is, will you pull the lever? Now, some people will because it saves more lives. Other people won't because their action deliberately kills somebody and other people just can't decide. So that's the original scenario of the trolley problem. Since then, there have been these other variations that people talk about. Let me just explain a few of them and then we'll talk a little bit more about that. So the uh, one variation is where there's a heavy person. So there isn't a second track this time. 
but you can push a heavy person into the trolley's path and that will stop the trolley. It'll save five people, but you're deliberately killing one person. So it's like the original scenario, except here you're much more directly pushing somebody into the path. Another variation is a heavy person again, but this time they're a villain. So the heavy person that you push onto the track was the person who engineered the scenario to put those five lives in peril. So another variation is where you're delegating authority. So you're back to the original situation, but you don't have to pull the lever yourself, but you can order somebody else to do it. So you're one step removed from being directly responsible for killing somebody. Another scenario is the old and young scenario, where the five people on that first track, they're old and frail, they don't have much longer to live, and the one person on the other track is young and healthy with a full life ahead of her. So how do you balance that? Do you save five lives or do you save more active years of life. Another example is where there's a lone genius. So the one person on the second track is a genius who's working on a miracle drug that might, just might, save many lives in the future. And one other scenario, this is an organ donor scenario, so forget about the the track and the trolley. Imagine in this case you're a surgeon and you've got five patients who all need life-saving organ transplants. Now another patient arrives in an ambulance in a critical condition and just happens to have, coincidentally, organs which are compatible with all the five patients. So do you let him die so that he can save the other five? So these are all variations of this trolley problem. And the trolley problem and these variations, they they just generate a lot of discussion and debate, and not only among philosophers, but also within the general public, because it's a very simple scenario to explain, but it caused a lot of discussion, debate, arguments. I've had conversations with my 11-year-old niece Maggie about this, and she talks about the ethical implications of those choices. And this is not just uh, an academic exercise. It's also got important implications for our future. For example, the way that we design software for self-driving cars. When they're in this scenario, what do you program the car to do? And the, the truth is, there isn't one correct answer to the trolley problem. And of course, the same applies in real life. So we value different things differently, even if we're in the same family, community or work team. So in your organization, some things matter more than others. But don't assume that everybody knows what they are and that everybody values them equally. To trust people to act wisely, tell them what matters to you, to the team and the wider organization. So, for example, if you look at your organization's values on your website, you'll see the typical sort of things like transparency or integrity or being customer centric. But if you ask 10 people what transparency means to them, you'll get at least 10 different answers. So to help your team members understand what really matters, find stories of workplace situations that show people living these values and maybe even not living these values. So if you want to demonstrate being customer centric, you could tell a story of somebody who solved a challenging customer problem. Or what does integrity mean? Maybe tell a story of a procurement agent who was fired for accepting a bribe. Um, If you want to talk about commitment, maybe there's a team member who worked through the night to meet a deadline. Or collaboration, there's a team that worked together to transform a non-performing department. So look for these stories and collect these stories because the stories clearly explain what the values mean and what really matters. The next thing is near enough is good enough. Way back in 2004, my mum compiled her favourite Sri Lankan recipes into an e-book and we sold it online. In fact, she was selling e-books before Amazon.com and we did it to raise money for a charity that we support in Sri Lanka. And at the time, online marketing was relatively new, but I knew enough to be able to create a simple one-page website with an online credit card payment facility. But... More frustrating than building an e-commerce site at the turn of the century was extracting detailed recipes from my mum because I wanted her to give me exact quantities of ingredients for all the recipes. But often she just said, a pinch of this or a bit of that. And it was frustrating. And I eventually pinned her down to specifics. And when we published the book, we had measurable quantities that would, I think, would meet the approval of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. But on reflection, she was right all along. See, for the minor ingredients in a recipe, near enough is good enough. And the small differences are just a matter of individual taste. So apply the same principle when you're building judgment and wisdom in your team members. You don't need to trust them to be perfect, whatever that means. And you don't need to trust them to be as good as you are, whatever that means. So some things are important. 
like the, the amount of chicken or coconut milk or chili in a chicken curry. And that's where you obsess first about values so people know what can't be compromised. But other things you can, you can kind of let go and there's a lot of leeway. And even for things that matter, context changes everything. So help your team members understand when and where things really matter. So for example, the GPS in your car's navigation system only needs to be accurate enough to find a street address to help you navigate. But the GPS in a self-driving car needs to know its exact location on the road. It needs to be much more precise. Just keep in mind that things that matter in any task might account for, say, 80% of the work. So set high expectations for that part of the task. But don't impose the same constraints on the last 20%. It's unproductive, it's disempowering to your team members, and it gives diminishing returns. Near enough is good enough. So leave that 20% to their judgment and wisdom, and just be confident that you can trust them to do the right thing. Next, build on their strengths. So since we're talking about cooking, I should say that I'm not a master chef by any means, but I can cook a few dishes reliably and consistently. And I recently, in the last few years, renewed my interest in cooking when I bought a sous vide cooker. So sous vide is French for under vacuum. And with this style of cooking, you seal the ingredients in a plastic bag and then you cook it in hot water at a constant temperature. And unlike most other cooking styles, sous vide cooking is very forgiving with the cooking times. So I can cook my steak for one hour, two hours or three hours and the result's exactly the same. But the correct temperature is critical. So I cook prawns perfectly at 57.2 degrees Celsius, medium rare salmon at 46.1 degrees, medium rare steak at 54 degrees. Now, if I accidentally cook my steak at the lower salmon temperature, I can't fix this just by cooking it longer. It has to be at the right temperature. So apply the same principle when you're thinking about trusting your team members. You know that they thrive and shine in some environments, but they struggle in others. So, so you know the team member who acts wisely when chairing a meeting, but doesn't handle angry customers well. There's another team member who might always step up when they're facing an important deadline, but they hate learning new technology and so on. So you know the right temperature for each of your team members, the, the environments where they best apply their skills, they exercise their judgment well, and they act wisely. It's, it would be foolish to put people, even highly experienced people, into environments that don't suit them, which need skills they don't have and don't want to learn. Now, now don't get me wrong, as part of their ongoing learning and development, you will stretch them by placing them in new, unfamiliar environments. But do this carefully with the goal of building their strengths. And building their strengths improves their performance, keeps them motivated, and increases the capability in your team. But don't automatically assume that you can put them into a new environment and then they'll be just as good. And even when you do this appropriately, don't assume that you can trust them yet at the same level in this new environment. They might have all the right skills, but they still need the time to build mastery, judgment, and wisdom in this new environment. And some aspects of this might be easier and faster than others, but don't take this for granted. The last thing I want to say about trust is to trust them. In the book No Rules Rules by the Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, he talks about how leaders at Netflix are encouraged to trust their staff and then demonstrate their trust in practice. For example, Hastings says that they post their high-level strategy documents. I mean, these are detailed confidential documents that they definitely wouldn't want to leak to competitors, they post that on this big public bulletin board right next to the coffee machine. And they trust staff to respect its confidentiality. And Reed Hastings says, I don't want my employees to feel like they're working for Netflix. I want them to feel like they're part of Netflix. So they've got this radical transparency. And it's not unique to Netflix, but it's rare. And it's a consequence of building a high level of trust with your team members. You start by trusting them to do their job. You help them to build their judgment to make good decisions. And you eventually reach a point when they do have enough wisdom and you can trust them with the keys to the kingdom. You know what? It's easy to find excuses for not doing this. You don't have the authority. You don't want to burden them with too much information. Not every team member deserves this level of trust. You've got a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. You risk losing your job or even worse, and so on. There's plenty of reasons why you shouldn't do this. You can always find legitimate reasons to draw a line in the sand and play it safe. But at least think about how you could cross that line. 
And if it's easier and makes you feel more comfortable, start small, perhaps with one or two key people and in non-critical situations. Last year, the Workforce Institute at Kronos uh, surveyed leaders and their teams about trust. And they found that most employees say trust has a major impact on their work, including their mental health, their career choices, and their sense of belonging. That's good, but it's disappointing that almost two-thirds of the respondents, and these are both the leaders and their team members, said trust needs to be earned, not presumed. And it's disappointing, but not surprising, because most leaders just don't know how to build trust systematically. And I'm not saying that you should automatically assume that you can trust your people to be fully competent in the same way that I don't automatically trust that Abby can drive a car competently. You need to build trust through those stages. So apply the ideas that we've talked about to build mastery, judgment and wisdom, and you'll be rewarded with better performance and greater loyalty. So that's one of my favorite chapters from the book because it's talking about trust and leadership and one of the key things that you can do to help people grow and develop and operate effectively in this fast-changing world. As I said, you can get the book from disruptedbook.com.au or from my website, gihanperera.com. I always set out with the goal that every book I write is the best book I've ever written. And hand on my heart, I know that's true for this book. I'm really pleased with it. And I know that a lot of people have already got value from the ideas in the book, which I've been sharing with clients and audiences and on my blog and other areas over the last year. If you do get the book and uh, read it and get some ideas from it, I'd love to hear about them. Please drop me a line and let me know. I hope you enjoyed that and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, please share the love by reviewing and rating it in the place that you get your podcasts. That really does help to promote it to other people as well. And if you want to engage with me to go deeper with these ideas, let's talk. Especially now as we're all trying to navigate and lead our way through this time of great uncertainty, it's more important than ever before to be able to offer clarity and confidence so that we can really be fit for the future. I offer conference keynote presentations, both online and in person, workshops and masterclasses, mentoring and coaching. And you can find out more at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, you can also find my blog, my newsletter, more episodes from this podcast and some public online presentations. And these are all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team and, of course, yourself as well. Stay safe and healthy and I'll see you in the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike. <laughs>